James chapter number 5. Now, I'm taking you all the way to verse number 16 today. Not that I'm working my way to 16. I'm starting in 16. Um, Our paragraph that we're actually studying, which is in chapter number 5, but right among verse 13 through the end of the chapter is the topic of prayer, and it is based on the issues of dependence, and we must depend upon the Lord, because that is what living faith is all about. A living faith, not a doctrinal statement, not just a a, uh, form or concept of, I do it this way because my church does, or my parents did, and they taught me this, but We live out our faith. It's a living faith. That's what we're stressing all the way through our study here. And we're examining that kind of faith and what it looks like. And in this chapter, we've started with those who are under some very serious situations. And I'm not going to review all of the background information, but uh, they were called to trust the Lord and to trust Him with all their heart. They were told to be patient, and to be patient, and to strengthen their heart. Right? Number four, and don't grumble. (laughs) Yes, I want to leave that one for you guys to answer every time. Don't grumble. But see, what it comes down to, really, is do you trust him? Do you trust him? And to the degree that you know him, you will trust him. And to the degree that you know him and trust him, you will pray. And that's where we are in this part of the study. And when I went through this with you last time, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about uh, the issue of prayer from verse number 13 on, that I kept saying that I should preach verse 13 and then verse 16 and then verse 14, and then verse 16, and verse 15, and then verse 16. And there's a reason for that, because verse 16 is where all of them tend to circle around. And so we're actually going to try it that way, and look at verse number 16 today. Then we're going to go back to verse 13, and then we'll keep working our way through the passage that way. 16, there's a phrase at the end of verse number 16 that says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. In whatever translation you might have read just now, you might have said, but I've got a a couple of different words in that. So we're going to talk about that today. Alright? It's a a very essential concept. It's straightforward statement in the middle of all the examples. This is what we need to focus on today. So, let's ask the Lord for help, of course. Heavenly Father, the privilege of prayer is an amazing thing that we have actual access to your throne through Jesus Christ who made it all possible that we right now as a body together in this place of fellowship in this place of worshiping you are right before your throne and we are able to express what's on our heart and you hear us what an amazing thing that is Thank you for the access we have. And as we learn more about this prayer, what you call us to do, I pray that you challenge our hearts thoroughly with it 
and help us to be more effective in the way we live, that our faith might truly be characterized by a living faith. And that prayer is not a tack-on to what we do. It's not the way to introduce just a meal or the end of a day to cap off the events. But it becomes something that's a living conversation between us and you. Something that's just as natural, such as, such as essential as talking to anybody else we do. And I pray that you teach us about faith and prayer. Help us with this today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. New American Standard Version that I have in front of me here. Back in 1390, John Wycliffe, one of the first to ever put uh, the scripture into an English text so people could see it and read it. He was working on the New Testament, translating the scriptures for the people. I can't imagine what that was like in that day, to see it actually in a language I knew. And what an amazing thing. These are his words, and I'm going to show you kind of how this phrase has developed over the years. It's fascinating to me. He said in his first translation into English, For the continual prayer of a just, just man is worth much. Say, so, well, that's very curious. The continual prayer of a just man is worth much. Then William Tyndale, about 150 years later, wrote the New Testament, based on the Greek translation, and he wrote it this way. Listen carefully. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much if it be fervent. What did that just do? It put a condition on it, didn't it? If it be fervent. What if it's not? Hmm. Makes you think, doesn't it? So, that's why John Tyndale put it, William Tyndale, rather, uh, that carried on for most of the 1500s till the Bishop's Bible was written. And these guys said, we're going to clean it all up. All right? So they thought they'd fix that in 1560. And they put, for the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So they moved the condition into the identity of the kind of prayer it was. A fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The Geneva Bible was then produced after that about 17 years later. The uh, group meeting in Geneva, they said, hey, let's go back to Tyndale. So what did they do? They wrote it this way. For the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, if it be fervent. <laughs> they went back to that square, and they left it there for a while. Uh, in 1599, the uh, Catholics decided, well, we've got to do this too, put an English translation out. And so the Douay, Douay Rhymes translation of 1599 they pull it right from the Latin, actually, and it says, The continual prayer of a just man availeth much. If you say, boy, that sounded a little bit like Wycliffe's in the first place, right? Well, Wycliffe translated from the Latin. So they said, okay. Well, they carried that for a while until 1611. What Drew just, I heard Drew up there, yes, all right. 1611, the King James Version. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That has not changed in the King James for over 500 years. That phrase, many of you have read it. The effectual 
fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 1900s came along. A lot of translations pop up. The Revised Version, which also was the American Standard Version, said, The supplication of a righteous man availeth much in its working. Now, that helps, doesn't it? You say, what? That's exactly it. So, the New King James was produced. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. They took the TH out of it. Availeth to avails. The NIV, which some of you carry with you today. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Does that sound a little different from the others? How about this one? I read to you this morning. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. New American Standard. English Standard Version. Some people carry the ESV. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What's that mean? What if it's not working? That's usually our question. Does this work? That's an interesting phrase too. The World English Bible. The insistent prayer of a righteous person is powerfully effective. So now it has to be insistent on that. Lexham English Bible, the effective prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. And I can't go without the Amplified. Everybody's got to hear the Amplified at least. The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available that's dynamic in its working. Woo! Boy, is that a fun one. Okay, you got it? After reading all those, you're like most people probably, and they say, what? I thought prayer was more easier than that. It sounds so complicated trying to figure this out. Let me ask you this, just from what you heard. Is the emphasis on the prayer? We saw how it should be prayed. It should be prayed continually, fervently, effectually, effectively, insistently, earnestly, heartfelt, continued, powerful, and with great power. Is that how we are to pray? Is the emphasis on the prayer, the one who's doing it? Most translations have that he must be just or righteous. Is the emphasis on the results? It's worth much. It avails much. It accomplishes much. It availeth much and it's working. It has great power as it is working. It's powerfully effective. It makes tremendous power available and it's dynamic and it's working. Where do we put the emphasis? Now, it might start to sound a little confusing, huh? Is there something I need to be in order to pray? Is there some way in which I need to pray? Is there some results I should expect if I pray? Is prayer better on our knees? Not while you're driving. With your eyes closed? Not while you're driving. <laughs> well, my kids would tell you, I told them when they were young, if they open their eyes during prayer, they'll go blind. Of course, I told them if you don't pray before you eat, you'll get poisoned too. But that's a different one. It works. 
it's funny how we have made prayer more of a ritual, more of a concept of how to do it, when to do it, why to do it, what to look like when you do it, what words to use while you do it, that we have confused it on top of all these others for the last 600 years who have been trying to tell us what it means. And then we all step back and say, now how do we do this? Well, does Scripture tell us to pray? Yes, it does. So we know it's important, and we know it's value, don't we? We know that we need to pray. We must pray. And we know that God answers prayer, doesn't he? We're sure of that. But are there rules? Are there requirements? Are there expectations? Does God look at that and say, nope, that one didn't measure up, I won't listen. We're going to talk about that a little bit today, because as I look at this statement, and you just heard all these different ways it's been written, that's only five Greek words. To them, it's easy. To us, we've complicated it. We could take five words and turn it into ten words in the New American Standard Version. Just trying to say all that those five little words do. When I I teach my students to translate a sentence, I tell them to parse out the sentence. They have to tell me what each verb is and which each adverb means and the nouns and all these. And we, we work through that very carefully because everything has its place and everything has its part. And then you could step back and look at it and say, well, that's not as complicated as I thought. In this statement, there is one subject. There's one subject. It is the word prayer. That's it. It is modified two ways. It's modified by the person doing it, the just man or the righteous man. And it's modified also in the concept of being effectual. Those are modifiers that help us understand the word. But prayer is the subject. The verb is the idea of working, accomplishing. Prayer accomplishes. It's present tense. And what it accomplishes, the direct object, is many things. Much. And that's the simplest way to put this. You're looking at a prayer that is accomplishing many things. Alright? Accomplishing many things. Now, I thought that when I was putting this together, I would be able to run through all five of those words real simply. And I started to type my notes. And see, all these pages, that's on the first word. I said, oh no, this is going to take a while. But then, some of you have to stay anyway for pictures, so. Let's talk about prayer. Let's just talk about the subject matter today. The word prayer. Because this is what really did surprise me. I assume, and I shouldn't do that, I tell my students, don't assume that when you're doing Bible study. Don't go with your assumptions. But I did. And I thought, oh, this is a standard word, everyday word. This is a word for prayer. We see it dozens and dozens of times in Scripture. And that's exactly what we're going to deal with here. And that's all there is to it. And then I looked it up and I said, wait a minute. I've never seen that word in my life. I had to look it up. I said, why did I have to look at it? Because it's not a common word in Scripture. It's quite a unique one. And matter of fact, what I found with it was 
Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Deus is the Greek word here, deus, which means nothing to you probably, except deo my might. You say, what's that? Oh, that means to tie something up. Isn't that interesting? To tie something up. To tie it up. Deo is the Greek word. Tie it, tie it, tie it. I teach my student luo, which is loose it, loose it, loose it. And this is the opposite. Tie it up. She's thinking, destroy it, destroy it. Because she's one of my students who did that. It meant to lose or destroy. And they always translated it destroy on the quizzes. Even though I said it's loose, they said, no, it's destroy. And I said, you can use that most of the time, except for when they went and set the donkey, untied the donkey and took it to Jesus. That's the same word. And you don't want to destroy the donkey. It doesn't do any good, right? So... Anyway, she laughs every time I say, Luo, it means destroy. It means let loose. But Deo means to tie it up. You see the contrast between letting loose and tying up. Now, here's what's interesting about it, because that's the essence of the word that we're looking at here. This, This noun used as a prayer is the idea of something tied up with knots. You say, well, I don't get that one. What do you mean by tie it up with knots? So let me walk through a few of these just so you get the idea. The old or the standard word for prayer is uh, just simply to pray, to pray to God. Uh, very frequently rendered in scripture. There's a simple form and there's a more intense form, but they are everywhere on the pages. Uh, just to ask a question, to, to get some information. There's a word for that for prayer. There's a word used for asking favors. There's a word for that, for prayer. Uh, there's a word that means demanding something. That sounds rather interesting, I know. But the idea of demanding something is another form of prayer. There's another one which is searching for something. You don't have the answers and you really need them. And so that's one of the words used for prayer, that you're searching uh, for answers from God. And those are pretty good words. And then comes this word in the list of the thesaurus of different words. This word, to tie, is its basic idea. It has to do with that which is most urgent. Most urgent. Let me give you a simple picture. The thing you care about, you secure, right? You do your best to make sure it's secure. In your house, At night, probably, you lock your doors. Now, I understand in Hillsdale, you didn't have to do that years ago. I don't know, some people still might not do that. I'm not going to go around testing. But, you secure your house. You lock your doors. You secure your animals. Sometimes, it might be putting it on some sort of a leash or something, so it doesn't get away. We used to say, tie up the dog. You know, why? Didn't want to get away. So we secure the things that are urgent to us, most important to us. Here's an interesting concept to you because it's tied to this issue of prayer. It's tied to it. It, it, It's rendered at times by a three-letter word. We say beg. Beg. 
It's used in 2 Corinthians 5, for example, verse 20, where Paul writes, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, and we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to him. Was that urgent? Yes! That was an urgent thing. Most important to Paul. So he used powerful words like beg. He did it again in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. You say, Pastor, what are you saying? Here's Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He says, you know, these churches up in Macedonia, it's churches like Thessalonica and Philippi, they're very poor. But we were taking up an offering. And they wanted to be part of that offering. And I told them, I'm paraphrasing, okay. I told them, you guys can't afford it. It's okay. God doesn't demand that of you. They said, no, Paul. No, we want to be part of this. And this is the word that came in verse 4. We begged you. They begged us with much urging for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. (laughs) Can you picture that? They said, Paul, you're not leaving until we give you something. All right? They begged to participate in that. That was a powerful little word. And it cost them a lot to participate with that. It's begging, making a request. We use the word uh, beseech at times when we use a word like this. Now, here's a picture that I think will bring to light something very interesting. It comes down from a man named... Let me get this right. Adonijah. You know Adonijah? I see blank faces. That's okay. Most people don't. He was to be the king instead of Solomon. In his mind. In his mind. You see, Adonijah was afraid. Adonijah was afraid because, you see, he expected to become the next king. And if you read the story in 1 Kings chapter number 1, when David was on his deathbed, that uh, Adonijah, being the oldest of the children, figured, well, I'm the next king. So he got together a couple of the priests and a couple of the important men, and they went out and they proclaimed him king. Oops, daddy didn't say so. And certainly Bathsheba, she didn't say so, being the queen. And neither did a handful of very important prophets and, and priests and such. And they came to David and said, um, we've got an issue. They're out there proclaiming the Dijana, the king right now. And is that your choice? He says, oh, no, no, no. Solomon's supposed to be king. And so David says, okay, you get your guys together and all that. You go over there and you proclaim Solomon king. So they went over there and proclaimed Solomon king while Adonijah was having a party. And all of a sudden he realized, I'm in trouble. You don't declare yourself king and then find out somebody else is king. You're in a bad spot. And this is what it said he did. Donajah was afraid of Solomon. And he arose and he went and took hold of the horns of the altar. In other words, he ran into the place where the tabernacle was. 
He went up to the altar where the burnt offerings were, and on the four corners were these horns, and you go up there, and you grab onto them, and you hang on tight. Now, that's an uncomfortable place. Number one, because there's a fire going right there in that altar, and it's pretty hot. And the priests are busy working around there, and all the activities going on that way. And to do that meant that you knew the seriousness of what's about to happen, and you're actually begging for your life. And that's where he's found. He's out there hanging tightly onto the horns of the altar. He says, I'm not letting go. I, I am begging, begging. And he says, let King Solomon swear to me today. He will not put me to death. Well, there's more to the story than that. and You'll have to read the rest of it. But here's something interesting. It was a common practice in Israel. And in other neighboring nations, they found this true of other places, that the symbolism of taking hold of the altar's horns seemed to have meant that as God had been gracious to man, as seen in accepting man's offering to atone for his sins, so one, so one man should be gracious to another man who has offended him. He's begging on behalf of what God has done for you that you show me mercy. Begging. Begging is what it is. That happened an awful lot in the Old Testament. You'll read it from time to time. Somebody who's desperate for life, they're hanging on the horns of the altar. Very interesting scene. In Psalm chapter 118, verse 27, it says, The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festal, festival offering with cords to the horns of the altar. <laughs> Part of the ceremony. Bring in the offering. Tie it up right there next to the horn. So that it doesn't get away. It's an offering that we want to give only to God. It's an interesting concept. What does all that mean? There is a prayer that's very general in nature. And then there is this prayer that stresses the urgency of the need. The urgency of the need. It comes with a lot of modifiers to help you understand it better. Uh, modifiers that, that adjust it from a mild word to something very intense. The effective prayer. The urgent prayer. The continual prayer. The insistent prayer. Can you see somebody begging? All those words just kind of pop off the page, don't they? This man is very serious about his request. And that's the nature of the prayer that we're looking at here. I find it very interesting, because as you study it more and more, the stronger it seems to get. And I think of pictures of what that must have looked like. Here's one that I like to think that this is the kind of prayer it would be. Peter is saying to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out on the water. He's going to come walking out onto the of Galilee. In a couple of weeks, Jeff's going to try that too, when he's over in Israel. He's going to see if that works. Um, he says, come out on the water, and Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, you know, he walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. But seeing the wind, this is how Matthew records it in chapter 14, seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. What did he do? You know the next words. He cried out, Lord save me. 
That was a prayer. Now, his actions were amazing. He cried out. Here's the word, krazo. The Greek word means to scream like a raven. Isn't that a great word? Ah! That's what it is. He's thinking. That's not, oh Lord, I think it. This is serious business and it's short. And he let it go. With all his heart, you can hear it now, can't you? He screamed, Lord, save me. That's the kind of prayer we're talking about here. An urgent need. There's no time to waste. There's another one that David recorded in Psalm 6. Verse number 1, I'm going to start there, four, four verses. David said, O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O oh Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O oh Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O oh Lord, how long? Return, O oh Lord, rescue my soul. Does it sound like he needs it? Save me. Because of your loving kindness. There's urgency in that. Urgency. There's begging in that. This is in this context. Here's the thing. When we are put up against something that's pretty huge in, in life, and we get those, don't we? Could be medical things, right? It could be that these people, employment issues, or it could be also because of, of punishment, or not punishment, but the persecution that's brought on you by this world. And I think we're going to learn that sometime in life. It's not an easy thing, but our world doesn't like the things that are right and true anymore, does it? We're starting to see that more and more. But persecution is not uncommon. Now, how did these people pray? What was the kind of request that they would have made in an urgent need? At a time of great time of distress, where they didn't know the answers. They didn't know how they were going to, in their case, what were they going to eat? What is, what's the next thing they could do? Now, when it comes to other people, we want to respond. This person's done me wrong. This problem's happening. I want to solve it. You know how we are. We're going to take the steps. We're going to do something. And so we become impatient. Right? And we just let it fly, whatever our emotions are telling us to say or do. And we grumble and we complain. Now, in regard to other people, you know exactly what he told them to do. Be patient. Be patient. Strengthen your heart and don't complain. You say, okay, I'm going to do that. Now what? Pray urgently. You see? Most of the time, we extend all of our strength and effort and, and out toward the others. That's the direction we aim with our urgency. When all the while he says, no, 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 not that, this way. Your urgency goes up to the Lord. Because he's the only one that could do something about it. Isn't that the issue of prayer? The issue of prayer is that I have a need and I can't fix it. But he can. And so I go to him because I know he can do it. I ask that he's willing to do it. And I leave the results with him. That is the nature of this prayer. 
This is the way it's designed that it goes to him. And it doesn't, we, we don't waste, or say it this way, don't waste your energy on trying to fix it when you can talk to the one who can fix it better. So many times we do this, I know. That's why the passage says this in James 5, verse 13. Is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. If anyone's cheerful, he is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly, it says, that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. And the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, is any among you stra- if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's a lot in that. I know. But it doesn't make any sense without understanding prayer. Because prayer comes down to a simple thing. As I said, it is reliance upon God. And none of these verses can be fulfilled None of them can be answered without reliance upon God. That's how simple the whole thing is. We must depend upon Him. We must, because we know that we are needy people. And we live in a needy world, don't we? We know that we must go to somebody else to meet that need, and we know that God is able to. So we ask Him to be willing to meet our need, and we trust Him with the answer. I don't know, that might be the hardest part. Trust him with the answer. The whole thing is dependence all the way through. All the way through. Here's some helpful thoughts I'll just give to you along the way. But think of these things. When it comes to prayer, prayer is properly addressed to God the Father. You say, but wait a minute, don't we pray to the Son, don't we pray to the... Well, this is what the Son said. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father, who is in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. That's Matthew 6, 6. In Ephesians 1, 16, Paul says, Do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in our prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you a spirit of wisdom, and a revelation of the knowledge of Him. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for us, that is true. He stands before the Father's throne, and that prompts another thing concerning prayer. Prayer is to be offered in the name of Jesus. That is not a caboose. Alright? You just add it on to make, you know, so everyone knows when the prayer is at the end. I knew a lady who said, she put on her shoes at that time, because she knew my prayer was done. I said, really? Then I tried to figure out how I could mingle that in other places in the, in the prayer, just because I heard that. But some people say, well, when they say in Jesus, say, Woo, it's over, right? Actually, he tells us to pray in his name. 
the prayer must be in accord with his character. It must be presented in the same spirit of dependence and submission that marked him. He said in John 16, 23, in that day, You will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. That's quite an incredible statement. He said again in John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now think that one through next time you ask a request in his name. Is the Father glorified in the Son because of what you just asked. If you ask anything in my name, he says in John 14, 14, I will do it. The Holy Spirit also is operative in prayer. The Holy Spirit is the interpreter of the needs of your heart. There are times when you don't know the words. And I've been there too. And I've gone to him and said, I don't even know how to pray, Lord. I don't know how to pray right now. And so I count on the fact that the Holy Spirit does. He makes intercession for us when it's impossible for us to express these words. You can find that in Romans 8, 26 and 27, where the Spirit helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Those are very important passages. So we see the entire Trinity is part of this process, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, we'd be alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. By the way, let me add another one. Because I've already told you, praying to the Father, intercession by the Son, the uh, uh, interpreting, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. That's one, two, three. Number four, make your prayers intelligent. I'm just going to plead with something. You know God's listening to these things. And it's funny how sometimes we are so unintelligent. Have you ever heard your prayers? Record them sometimes. Play them back and say, wow, did I say that? It's funny how sometimes we we go into prayer. Number one, we think God needs to be told everything because he knows nothing. And so we go through the whole list. Lord, I want to tell you about this afternoon. It was three o'clock this afternoon when this happened. And then you start going detail by detail, all the effects. Does he already know what you need before you ask it? Yes, he does. You don't have to inform him of anything, something new. No, that's not what he's looking for. He wants to know what you need. Sometimes we go through the whole motion and we talk about the events, but we never ask for what we need. He says in 1 Corinthians fourteen fifteen, what is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray also with my mind. I will sing to, with the Spirit, and I will sing also with my mind. Intelligent prayers. Not just babbling sounds, not just nonsense, not just vain repetition. The Gentiles are good at that. Unfortunately, we're Gentiles. <laughs> vain repetition, just blah, 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 blah. Same thing over and over again. Intelligent prayers. Prayers are also to be in keeping with the will of God. Now, that is very hard to know, I know. But there's so many verses that speak about praying according to the will of God. According to the will of God. I think we should tack that on every single time. If it be thy will. Do you know who else prayed that way? Jesus did. And not the least, but this is also one of those two. Faith is essential to prayer. It's essential to the issue of prayer. We must have faith. This is what it says in James Chapter 1, 
verse 5 through 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the winds. For that man ought not to expect that which he he will receive anything from the Lord, because he's a double-minded man, and he's unstable in all his ways. Boy, there's a lot to learn about prayer. But this is our first glimpse of it. An urgent begging. What a concept that is for us to look at. Do you have needs that are just huge? You know, they're far beyond what you can ever meet, ever ever hope to meet, perhaps. Have you talked to the Lord about it? I mean, just straightforward. Talk to Him. He is not afraid of your begging. He's not afraid of your intensity in prayer. It doesn't alarm Him. It doesn't scare Him. It doesn't even manipulate Him, by the way. (laughs) But He wants to know your heart. He wants to know your heart. When you come before Him in prayer, think of this man in his way... Uh, of praying, effectual, fervent, insistent, continual, powerful prayer. In other words, Lord, help. Help. I'm in urgent need. The Lord hears that. Heavenly Father, you are so very good to us in what you have done for us by giving us a place to come. When our needs are great, and they are often, when our burdens are so heavy, when we know that we can't take another step. Your word has told us to cast all our cares upon you because you care for us. There is much for us to learn in this, but it is an issue of dependence. Do we trust you? Do we trust you? Even in the most intense moment, do we trust you? May that be our first response to the things that strike us in life. May it be our first response to go to you. In the moment of urgency, to go to you. In the moment of surprise, go to you. In the moment of our deepest need, go to you. Lord, this is what we want to learn, and this is what we seek to do. Help us as we learn this thing called prayer, as we learn about you and your willingness to hear us. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.